33. There's an outline and some additional resources on pages 4 and 5 in your bulletin. And we welcome those visiting with us this morning. This is a sermon series we're going through. And the hope and prayer of the series is that our eyes will be turned to Jesus. Hear now God's word. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Well, he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. How many of you kids have started school already? Didn't they used to wait till after Labor Day? Or maybe some of you still do. And you kids are in another grade, right? You were in preschool and now you're in kindergarten or you go from seventh grade to eighth grade or some of you maybe have graduated higher education. The Christian life, loved ones, is a life of growing in grace but never graduating beyond the gospel. It's not like we have to get to another level above and beyond. We go deeper and higher with the gospel. What is the gospel? It is the good news of Christ's life, that he obeyed the law in our place, of his death, that he satisfied the curse of God's law against sin, of his resurrection, that he defeated the powers of sin, Satan, and death, that he crushed the seed of the serpent, as God promised in the covenant of grace in Genesis 3 to Adam and Eve. It's the good news of his ascension. He has ascended into heaven. He has sent us his spirit. And he is reigning and ruling at the right hand of the Father, praying for you. And he is returning one day to judge the living and the dead. The gospel is Christ, his person, his work. And by faith we rest and we receive all that he has done and is for us. Here in Matthew, we have seen over and over again the beauty of Jesus, the compassion of our Savior, that he cares for those who are sick, that he heals those who are filled with disease, that he raises a little girl from the dead, that he cares for the crowd as they're hungry, a crowd of maybe fifteen to 20,000, with the miracle of that 
feeding through the bread and the, the fish. And that this, this Jesus who feeds his people, not only there physically, feeds us spiritually as we turn our eyes to him. We want to see Jesus today. And what we have here today actually are three miracles, not just one. And we want to first of all see Christ walking on the water in his divine power. So Jesus feeds the 5,000 men, 15 to 20,000 total when you include women and children. And the crowds are amazed. But there's a difference between being amazed and having faith. If you're a football fan, you might have been amazed at the, the toe that touched in the end zone as the Gophers pulled out another shocker to open their season on Thursday night. But you would have been beyond amazed if after Jackson caught that ball, he sprouted wings and flew out of the stadium. Then you would have said, this is a different sort of person. <laughs> I don't know who he is. That'd be all over the Twitter, wouldn't it? Well, the crowd here is amazed in that second sort. Like, who is this man? He just fed this enormous crowd by a miracle. But they don't, at this point, have saving faith. They see Jesus as a walking fast food restaurant, as an urgent care clinic. Heal me, feed me, but there's not true trust in him. In fact, not only do they want the fast food from him, they want to make him king. John 6 says that they tried by force to make him king. Get rid of the Romans. This is our guy. Jesus is at the height of his popularity from an earthly perspective at this point, but he didn't come for that. John 6, the parallel to this, gives us Jesus' church shrinkage seminar, as Bob Godfrey says. The crowds disperse. They leave him because they're following him for all the wrong reasons. And Jesus sends his disciples away in a boat. He goes to commune with his father, the one who is true God and true man, the one who has two distinct natures in one person. He is communing in prayer, and the disciples are alone. It is now the end of a very long day. They were exhausted before this day began, if we remember from last week. The disciples go into the boat about seven or eight at night on the water. They're on the Sea of Galilee. 13 miles by 8 miles about, in a place in the world where wind would rush down at times suddenly from the surrounding hills. And storms could begin in a fury in an instant. We saw that already in Matthew 8. The professional fishermen that they were, they would not be freaked out normally, but in this case, they're exhausted and they're rowing for what could be six to ten hours. We know that because of the time marker John gives. They're going about three or four miles in that time. That's a long time to row, a very short distance. And at the fourth watch of the night, Matthew says, between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., in the midst of their utter exhaustion on the sea, which in the Bible is a symbol and a figure of ominous, deadly power, someone spots something. 
Kids, have you ever been on a boat and you look in the distance and you think, what's that out there? Is that a bird? Is that a plane? What, what is it? Superman? <laughs> they see what they think is a ghost. They're terrified. Remember, the exhaustion factor is a part of this. Plus, this is not something ordinarily seen. They're thinking this is an evil spirit of someone that is taking on perhaps the form of a body in some way, and they are beyond terrified. But, loved ones, it isn't a ghost, kids. It's Jesus. And Jesus is not in a boat. He's not swimming. He's walking. The picture of walking is of effortlessness. This is not a calm pond. Even if it was, you and I couldn't walk on it. But it's a raging sea. Wind and waves. And Christ is walking over it. Can you walk on water, children? Maybe you've seen someone bare feet water ski. Or you've watched those nature shows with geckos that run, those little guys. Maybe you've gone ice fishing, but you can't walk on water. Neither can I. Only God can do this. This is a supernatural miracle of God himself. Our culture has taken up all sorts of phrases that go along with this. That guy in his pride, does he think he can walk on water? Or he really does walk on water. He is amazing. Or she asked me to finish this project for my school and it's due on Tuesday. Does my teacher think that I can walk on water and do this? Right? People use this phrase in all sorts of different ways. And people also deny the truth of what Jesus did. Maybe there was a sandbar. He was kind of walking on the sand. Or maybe there was ice underneath. It was really cold and there was this thin veneer of ice that held him up. Beloved, the blindness of unbelief, the hardness of heart will come up with all sorts of reasons to try to explain away the truth of God's word. Jesus is in the middle of the lake, a few miles out. He didn't go under the water. He didn't fly over the water. He walked on the water. Either this miracle stands and Jesus is God, or it falls and he's a sinful man pretending to be God. To reject the miracle is to reject what the Bible teaches about who Christ is. And we want you to know at this church, we believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, the infallibility of the Bible, the inspiration of the Bible, the deity of Christ. Jesus here is declaring himself to be God. Only God controls the wind and the waves. Only God can cause the sea to part and his people to walk through in the exodus. Only God can send a storm and cause Jonah to be thrown overboard and to still preserve him through the fish. Job 9, God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. How does Jesus walk on water? Because he is the one who created the water. He is the one by whom all things exist and still hold together. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Jesus commands the water to do what he wants it to do. It's a word of revelation. 
a divine epiphany, so to speak. One Presbyterian pastor brings out this from Mark 6. Mark 6.48 tells us something very interesting about this passage. It says Jesus meant to pass them by. So he's coming, but he meant to pass them by. That's strange, Mark 6.48. Is that like, well, we'll see you later, Peter. Nice knowing you. I'm, I'm going to continue. I'm going to just ignore you. I'm going to give you... No. The language there is filled with the Old Testament. And this pastor and others bring this out. To pass them by. Do you remember Exodus 33? Moses on Mount Sinai. Lord, show me your glory. And God said to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you or in front of you. I will proclaim my name. Or Elijah on Mount Horeb, 1 Kings 19. God was not in the wind, or in the earthquake, or in the fire, but in the still small voice. And 1 Kings says, behold, the Lord passed by. The Lord passed by in those Old Testament examples, and here in Matthew 14, to reveal himself. To show his servants, who are like us, often so ignorant and foolish, to show them himself. They don't yet trust him as they ought. We struggle with trusting the Lord. He's come in his power to show his glory that they might believe him, that this is God in the flesh. This is the greater Moses. This is the one who's greater than Elijah. He's coming to show them who he is by passing them by in that way, by walking, and he also tells them who he is. So kind is God to us. He comes so near to you in Christ. He acts, he walks, he tells. Look at what he says as the disciples cry out in fear. Take heart. It is I. Your kids come to you in the middle of the night. I ask my wife about this pretty much every morning. How did you sleep? How did the kids sleep? Because <laughs> a lot of times I'm not real helpful in the middle of the night. Is that a nice way to put it? I don't know. How did you sleep? Well, our three-year-old came and woke me up two times. That may be common in some of your homes. Maybe you're past that stage. When kids come, maybe they're awake, maybe they're frightened. Parents, you comfort them. You assure them. You say, it's okay, I'm here with you. You pray with them. You cry out to God with them. You hug them. You kiss them. Jesus is saying, it is I. Be comforted. Literally, he's saying, I am. The covenant name of God, Yahweh. I am the God who appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. The God who was there at the burning bush. I am who I am. The God who says in Isaiah, I am the one who blots out your sins. I am the Lord and there is no other. That's who Jesus is. He is self-existent. The big theological word for this is aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Meaning, kids, everything around you has been made by God and is upheld by God. God alone exists by his own power. 
He has no beginning. He has no end. He's not dependent upon anyone or anything. It is I. That's who Jesus is. The eternal Son of God in the flesh. The presence of God with them. The one who is the way, the truth, and the life. He will say that in John. I am. I am the door. I am the shepherd. I am the vine. Before Abraham was, I am. That's why they don't need to be afraid. Do you remember Joshua 1? Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened. Don't be dismayed. You're about to go into the land. Those guys are giants. But the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Here is the one greater than Joshua, Jesus, whose name is the greater Joshua, the one who saves us from our sins. He is saying, take heart. He's not saying, don't worry about the wind and the waves. One man brings this out. He's saying, don't be afraid of me because you're seeing me in my glory. I am the great I am. But you don't need to fear because I've come to rescue. I've come to deal with your sin, your hardness of heart. Take comfort, secondly, as we turn our eyes to Jesus to see his saving grace to Peter. Peter hears Jesus speaking, it is I. And he answers literally, most likely, since it is you, not if, but since, command me to come to you. Jesus says, come. And Peter rests his confidence in Jesus and Jesus' word to him. Jesus calls and he commands, and Peter does it. This is miracle number two, beloved. Jesus walks on water, number one. Jesus commands, and Peter walks on water, number two. Peter gets out of the boat. He begins to walk. You perhaps have heard this story for many years, but it's vivid, isn't it? We're not sure how far he walked, how long he walked, but he's looking to Jesus, and then, like all of us, who are fearful and afraid of different things, he starts to think about where he is and what's around him more than who is with him. <laughs> this wind is fierce. We've been rowing hours and hardly going anywhere. The waves are enormous. And I'm walking on water. He's never done that before. Neither of you. He trusts Christ, but then, like we all do, he struggles with doubt. Jesus' words to him are not harsh words of condemnation. It's a gentle rebuke, yes. Oh, you of little faith. Peter, who, when you look at his life in the Bible, don't you see how this guy goes up and down? Maybe you're like that. Maybe I'm like that. He's got great confidence in the Lord. Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Two chapters later, you're not going to go to the cross. Whoa. He's here, he's here. Jesus, I will never deny you. He denies him three times. Jesus, don't wash my feet. Jesus, just wash my feet and my head, my hands, all of it. You see, he's going back and forth. He looks at the difficulties of life. We do as well. Doubt can creep in. We can be gripped by fear. We can panic or despair. 
Maybe it's a health diagnosis. Maybe it's a troubling relationship. Maybe it's a difficulty at work. Maybe it's a family struggle. We look around. We think there's no hope. We think, what are we going to do? We're at the end of our rope. We are helpless. And that's where Christ wants us to be. Because when we're engulfed by dark clouds and pressures, absorbed with them, turning inward on ourselves, we need to remember every time we look at myself once, I look ten times to Christ. Help me, Holy Spirit, because without the Spirit, I won't do that. I'll just turn inward. Even as his faith weakened, do you see what Peter did? He cried out, Lord, save me. He reaches out, and Jesus restores him. Jesus reaches to Peter. He grabs Peter. Peter doesn't reach to Jesus. Peter experiences the, the divine power and grace and love of Christ for him. Peter took his eyes off Jesus, but Jesus never takes his eyes off Peter. Spurgeon and Boyce both bring this up. This is a picture of saving faith. Peter is closer to Jesus when he is sinking than when he is walking on the water. That might surprise us, but I think they're both right. It's when Peter realizes he's in trouble that he's driven to his knees. To be closest to Christ, loved ones, is to be aware of our helplessness and our need. Peter cries out in desperation, Lord, save me. I can't do it myself. I can't keep walking on this water. In fact, I'm really not supposed to be walking on water at all. You are giving me the miracle and the grace to walk on this water. I need you, Jesus. I need you for salvation. I need you for life. Save me. Jesus rescuing Peter teaches us something, loved ones, about the nature of saving faith in the Christian life. He cries out to Jesus. What is saving faith? Well, what is faith not? Faith is not irrational. It's not a blind leap in the dark. It's not trusting yourself. It's not optimism. It's not crossing our fingers behind our back. It's not daydreaming, and it's not looking at me inwardly. It's not self-sustaining. It's not a, a leap in the dark or something for someone who is unthinking. It's not rationalism. It's all sorts of things that it's not. What is it? It is knowledge, assent, and trust in the person and the work of Christ. Knowledge. In order to believe, we must know something about someone. Who is that? Jesus. It's saying, this is God's word. This is true. James Boyce told a story. The elders came, as we have a, the joy of a profession of faith and a new member today. The elders came to him once, a long time ago. He died many years ago. And this person came to the elders and wanted to make their profession of faith. The elder said, well, what do you believe about salvation? He said, well, I believe what the church believes. What does the church believe? Well, the church believes what I believe. What do you and the church believe? We believe the same thing. <laughs> A lot of ignorance, right? Faith is knowledge. It's assent. 
The things we know about Christ are true. The word of God is true, the one I know. But so far, that only qualifies us to be a demon. James 2, the demons believe. They have knowledge. They know Jesus is the Son of God, but what do they lack? Trust. Trust means casting yourself on Jesus, resting in his promises, accepting his finished work on your behalf. It's by the Spirit of God that we have faith. We don't work faith up. God gives us that gift, Philippians 1. Faith has an object. That's where this story can point us to who? To Jesus, right? Turn your eyes on Jesus, Emmaus wrote. Faith is not based on my attitude or my feelings or my circumstances. Life goes up and down. The Psalms talk about that. That's why we sang the Psalms today. God, I'm in distress. I feel overwhelmed. The waves are breaking over me. God, turn. God, save. God, deliver. God, hear. God, help. I'm looking to Jesus. He's the object. Our doubts come and go. It's not the quality of our faith that saves us. It's the object of our faith that saves us, Christ. The Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? One of the most important questions you can ask. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Christ is faithful when we are weak, when we are sinking. We are never beyond this. His wisdom, his strength, his grace, his power, his forgiveness. God, rescue me. Jesus, hold on to me when my grip is very weak. By faith, we are grafted into Christ. It's like an empty hand that rests and receives. Here's a picture one man says. Say you've got a water bottle. You're thirsty. You're in the desert. You're about to die of thirst. What do you need to do to drink that water? The water saves you. You receive that water. So the picture is Christ saves us, but by his spirit we drink him in. We trust him. We receive his righteousness. We rest in him. In his finished work for us. He is the vine, we are the branches. We eat him, John 6, by faith. We drink of him, John 4. We commune with him as he communes with us. So despite my sin and yours, by faith in Jesus, God treats you as if you had never sinned and as if you were as righteous as Christ is himself. Jesus takes my sin. I receive his imputed righteousness. The direct act of faith is that trusting in Christ, his righteousness is mine. We step off the treadmill of trying to prove ourselves. Christ has done the work that the Father is satisfied with. The world says you're enough. Kids, the world says you, you are good enough and you can do it. You are loved by God. You are made in his image, God, uh, children. But we are not enough. Those around us are not enough. Christ is his righteousness and wisdom, his sanctification and redemption. That's mine, 1 Corinthians 1, by faith. 
we read here that there's a danger of those who harden their hearts. Not only were the crowds amazed, but Mark actually says the disciples had hardened their hearts at this point. That's an interesting phrase in Mark 6. So as we rest on Christ, as we enjoy by the reflex development of assurance that we are in Christ, that he loves us, we must never grow complacent. You have the assurance of faith in Jesus, loved ones, as you trust and rest in him, as you look away from yourself. But Hebrews, as we read in the law of God today, says, do not harden your hearts. It's easy for us to grow dull. We need, by the grace of God, to trust him each day. Because saving faith at rest also grows by the Spirit. As we feed on Christ and his word, as we begin a new Sunday school year, and as kids are back to school, maybe like you guys, uh, like us, maybe this summer you fell into habits. The kids were up too late. Maybe I was up too late. School starts, we've got to renew a, a good schedule again. We're not saved by our habits or disciplines, but by the Spirit of God, we begin to have a taste for Jesus, a taste for his word. Psalm 34, we taste and see that he is good. We are reminded again of his love for us. So as we start our day, an encouragement to start your day in the word of God, to look at a passage and and meditate on it or or chew on it. This week I was thinking about the, the passage in Luke 12, fear not, little flock, It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I was talking to my son today. As you start your day, then pray that God will help bring that word of gospel assurance to your heart today. Or if you're hardened in sin, God, convict me of this sin. I've been going back to it. I've been returning to it like a dog to its vomit. I need your spirit to convict me. I need to know the love of Christ again for me. I need your spirit to melt my hard, stony heart like an iceberg would be melting if it was placed outside today. How long would that last in 98-degree heat? That's what the love of God does. It melts this heart. It restores again to me the joy of my salvation, Psalm 51. How did the disciples respond? I said there were three miracles. What's the third? What happened when Jesus rescued Peter? What's happening in the passage? Do you see that? They got in the boat and the wind ceased. It's easy to kind of just ignore that. That's a miracle. The waves are crashing for hours on end. And Jesus gets in the boat, much like in Mark 8 or Matthew 8, and the wind stops. Have you ever been in a storm that just stopped? No more wind, no more rain, no more effect. This is Christ controlling the wind and the waves. He is Lord over it all. He walks on water. Peter walks on water. He stops the storm. And it reminds us of how he is the greater Moses. God delivered his people through Moses in the Old Testament. Now here comes Jesus walking on the water. 
to rescue his disciples who without him could have perished and without him would perish like we would in, his, in our sins. Here's Jesus who is swallowed up by the waters of death on the cross but not overwhelmed by them. He rises above them in triumph in the resurrection. So this night on the storm, Jesus rescuing the disciples points to the greater rescue. His death for us and for our sins, the gospel. His resurrection. And how do these disciples respond now? For the first time in the book of Matthew, they confess, truly you are the Son of God. And they worshiped. They bowed the knee. They adored Jesus for who he is. Beloved, you and I are made to worship. Worship is transformative. We become like what we worship, Psalm 115. For you as a Christian, that means now, by faith, as you behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus, you are being transformed more into his image. It means that we are gathered by God's grace to give him glory as a church family. It means as we worship, we turn our eyes to Jesus. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. And all of God's people said, amen. Let's stand to sing in response. We worship the Lord, not only in singing, but in the word and prayer. But let's see what God